Thanks for downloading or purchasing this sermon from Christchurch Forward. To find out more, visit forwardchurch.co.uk or join us on Sundays. James chapter 1. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes scattered among the nations. Greetings. Consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. Perseverance must finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. If any of you lacks wisdom, he should ask God, who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to him. But when he asks, he must believe and not doubt, because he who doubts is like a wave of the sea, blown and tossed by the wind. That man should not think he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all he does. The brother in humble circumstances ought to take pride in his high position, but the one who is rich should take pride in his low position because he will pass away like a wild flower. For the sun rises with scorching heat and withers the plant, its blossom falls and its beauty is destroyed. In the same way, the rich man will fade away even while he goes about his business. Blessed is the man who perseveres under the trial. Because when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life that God has promised to those who love him. When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when by his own evil desire he is dragged away and enticed. Then, after desire is conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. Don't be deceived, my dear brothers. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. He chose to give us birth through the word of truth, that we might be a kind of first fruits of all he created. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Phil. Uh, let's uh, leave that passage uh, open. We're just about to have a look at it uh, together. Let me pray for us, though, uh, before we do that. Heavenly Father, we do indeed thank you for your word of truth that you have planted in us. Uh, Those who have received your son, uh, receiving the word about him as truth. Uh, Father, give us humility now again tonight to receive that word, the wisdom from heaven. uh, Wisdom that can save us as we live in this world. And so pray, Father, that uh, you will help us tonight uh, to not be double-minded, but to be single-hearted. Uh, in our trust in you and your word to us. Amen. Well, as I said, uh, hopefully you've got uh, James uh, open. Uh, I knew what the page was, but now it's down there. So it's uh, page 1213. And uh, let me say as uh, we begin this, it's brilliant to be uh, back with you after three months in, uh, in uh, the struggle that was an Australian summer. It's, uh, it's great to be back in uh, spring. Uh, in the UK. Uh, So uh, thank you for your prayers uh, while we were away. We had a a wonderful time, very blessed uh, by it. And uh, let me also say, uh, extend uh, my thanks to to Lewis on his uh, last night with us. Uh, A personal thanks, really, how much uh, your ministry has blessed me and I'm sure many here uh, in this congregation as you've uh, led us uh, in in music many, many times. Thank you and I pray that uh, uh, the move will be a blessing uh, for you as well. Uh, we are starting the book of James uh, tonight. It's, uh, it's been uh, something I've been looking at uh, in these recent months. 
uh, together. We're, we're diving into it now. We'll be heading through it as, as we uh, head up towards uh, the summer. And uh, here as we begin it uh, in the uh, first uh, passage, which says uh, 1, 1 to 18, but really only going to get as far as verse 8 uh, tonight. Uh, let me, uh, as we start to look at it, let me invite you to consider uh, a remarkable prospect uh, a tantalising prospect, really. Uh, consider this possibility with me just for a moment. Uh, the living God, uh, the father of uh, the heavenly lights, as he's called in our passage, uh, the one who gives good and perfect gifts, uh, walks into your humble life and asks you, what do you want? Uh, what do you want me to do for you? Now, can you imagine uh, the chance to ask uh, the living God for your heart's desire? Uh, what would you ask for? Now, what do you want? How do you want your world arranged? If it was up to you, if it was uh, up to your choosing, uh, how would things be arranged? Uh, It might be a small request, uh, like I want spring to finally turn up. That would be nice. Uh, Or maybe it's other things. Maybe it's uh, simple things about life. I want life to be, well, I just want a quiet life. I want it to work. I want a peaceful life. I want ease. I want comfort. I want things to work the way I want them to work. I want to get up in the morning and what I plan to do end up being what I do. I I want things to just be straight and and no surprises. Or perhaps your desire, if the living God was to ask you for your heart's desire, comes from a heart that aches for something, Uh, something good. It longs for it. I want a child. I want a companion, I I want a cure, I I want a way back from the mess that I've made. Well, what is your heart's desire? What do you want? Uh, Live even uh, for a moment in this world and you will want for something. God has wired us up to long like that. And so to my question again, what if the living God walked up to you and asked you, what do you want me to do for you? I ask it as if it's a hypothetical question, but it's not really. Jesus, our Lord, did in fact ask that question. It's recorded twice in Mark's Gospel in chapter 10. There he is on the way to Jerusalem, just moments really from his own death. And firstly, his disciples sort of jockeying for position, competing to be the most significant, the most powerful, the most remembered disciple. They're doing that and he turns and he says, what do you want me to do for you? What's in your heart right now? What's your heart's desire? And just a few moments later, uh, they come across a pathetic blind man sat by the side of the road begging for mercy. And again, Jesus turns to him and says, what do you want me to do for you? And what's in your heart? It is a remarkable prospect being asked what is your heart's desire by someone who can actually do something about it. Uh, But here in James, I think we have an even more remarkable prospect Uh, Here before us, we have uh, in these first verses revealed to us uh, our God's heart's desire. Here in James 1, we have God's heart on his sleeve. We get to see what he desires for us. Uh, Now, in a moment, we're going to see that together. But first, let me say a a couple of things by way of background about this letter that we begin together tonight. Uh, You can see there in the very first verse of our uh, passage, James 1 verse 1, that is, written by James, uh, James, the brother of the Lord Jesus Christ. James uh, described elsewhere uh, as an apostle, one who spoke for Jesus uh, with authority, and yet here he takes the very humble title, doesn't he? Servant, servant of our glorious Lord Jesus, as he calls him in chapter 2, verse 1. 
It's remarkable, really, when you think about James. Uh, early in Jesus' ministry, uh, there in, I think it's John chapter 7, he's there with the rest of the family trying to quietly escort Jesus off the scene, thinking he's lost his mind. Uh, but here on the other side of the death and resurrection of his brother, he is convinced he is the Lord Jesus. In fact, so convinced was he, he became a key leader in the early Jerusalem church. Uh, a bishop, really, of that area. And uh, by AD 62, uh, the scribes and the Pharisees had rounded him up and stoned him to death for refusing to renounce that Jesus was the Christ. And so James is our author. And uh, here again in verse 1 of chapter 1, we're told who he writes to. He writes to uh, the 12 tribes scattered among the nations. He's not writing to one particular church, as Paul often does, Uh, He's writing to the 12 tribes, which is really a a popular way of uh, describing the the regathered people of God, what God had promised he would do in the last days, gather his people together. But we're told here that they are not gathered at all. In fact, they are scattered, scattered among the nations. Uh, He's writing probably to uh, Jewish Christians who were converted in Jerusalem in the early church, his parishioners, if you like, his church, but all of a sudden uh, they have been scattered, blown apart, blown out of Jerusalem all over the world, uh, cast out by the intense persecution that we read of in Acts chapter 8, cast out to the surrounding nations. And here he is, this pastor who's seen his congregation, uh, their lives blown apart, scattered into the various nations, and he's writing uh, concerned that they keep walking the life of faith in this, this big bad world that they've now been thrown out into. And so as we begin this letter, we need to see what it is. It is a call to persevere in faith. But it's not a call made uh, to a holy huddle. It's not a call made to a a group of people in a Jerusalem villa or in a a sort of a rain shelter in Canterbury Avenue sort of discussing theology. No, this is a letter about faith in Jesus in the real world. Uh, Here is a letter without even a trace of spin about what this world is actually like. In fact, all the way through this uh, small letter of James, just five chapters, are are vivid details of uh, the real world that they were trying to persevere in. The real world of uh, uh, the the nations outside of Jerusalem and yet also the world that we live in as we seek to persevere by faith. And let me encourage you to listen for a moment. Let me pick out some of the pictures that this letter gives us of the world that they were thrown out into, our world. See if it's not our world too. And let me encourage you, if you're willing to do this, uh, just for a moment to close your eyes and hear the description of the world that James gives us and see if it's not your world. The world that we live in is a world where we as Christians are scattered among the nations away from our true home. A world where we face trials of many kinds. Ours is a world of unstable people shifting, tossed and turned by the winds. Ours is a world where people fade away even as they go about their business. Now haven't we seen that this week? Ours is a world gripped by evil desires that lead to sin that in turn leads to death. And yet ours is a world that is showered with every good and perfect gift from heaven. In fact, in this world, we are those who have been reborn as first fruits of a new world that has only just begun. And yet as we are that, we are amidst a world that is full of, James says, moral filth and evil that is so prevalent. A world of significant need and brokenness. 
a world of favouritism, discrimination, exploitation and injustice, of harsh and evil words that destroy both hearer and speaker. Ours is a world of disorder. Ours is a world of unrequited desires that destroy us. Ours is a world full of boastful plans regarding the future. A world where wealth is collected and then hoarded and used selfishly and unjustly. Well, there's our world. Uh, the world that these, uh, these Christians had been cast out into, a world that we're told in 1 verse 2, do you see it there, where we face trials of many kinds. And how these first readers knew that. Can you imagine for them, their lives had been blown apart, all they had in Jerusalem, all they had in their lives, they start to name the name of Jesus and it all goes. But this is our world too. A world where we do face many trials. Now let's not pretend that we face similar persecution to them. Not many of us have. But James uh, here in 1 verse 2 is speaking of the general experience of what it is like to live in this world. Do you see what he says there in 1 verse 2? He says, when you face trials of many kinds. Uh, literally face means to fall into. These are the things that come at us in life that are unexpected. They're not what we planned or what we'd hoped for. But they come. Now, sometimes it's things from outside that blindside us, that we never saw them coming. If we'd seen them coming, they would have floored us. And then there's the inner trials, uh, the trials of our own conflicted hearts. James says trials like that, both outside and inside, will come in many kinds. Now, some of them are common to us all. Some of them will be very specific and this is no theory, is it? This isn't just an idea. This might happen. Uh, this room is full of stories of trials faced, isn't it? Now look around you just now. Look around. Many of you will know many of the stories of trials of many kinds that this room has experienced. Now you'll have your own stories, uh, some of them long past, but still hurt. And some of them you'll be right in the midst of it now. Trials that leave us bruised and bewildered as James' congregation would have been as they sat in the ashes really of what their life used to be in Jerusalem. Well, let me ask this. When we experience this world as it is, as it really is without the spin, without the gloss, how do you respond? When you face trials of many kinds that come at us, what's the honest response you make? Well, first of all, there's grief, isn't there? Deep fault lines of pain that come with these trials. Yes, says the Bible, that's right. But beyond that, there's all sorts of other responses we make, isn't there? As trials come upon us, whether they be small, frustrating trials or huge ones, uh, we can respond by uh, doubting God's goodness. Especially if uh, the world that we now experience, our world, is not how we imagined it would be or should be. This is not how it should be. Or we can respond with fear and uncertainty. Uh, We can try to sort of control the elements of our life to protect us from further trials. I mean, that's my default if I face trials. I'm sure I'm not alone. If 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 I just plan and plot and hold and control my life carefully enough, arrange things carefully enough, then it'll be safe. It's a ridiculous philosophy, isn't it? Or we compromise as Christians. Especially when our faith causes division or anger or even persecution. How tempting is compromise? 
or we just feel plain harassed by this world, frustrated, angry. We hit out, we look for who or what to blame. Or for many of us, perhaps uh, feeling uh, sheltered from trials, we grow selfish and prideful that things are actually going quite well for us and we've arranged it that way. Or the opposite, we grow jealous and dissatisfied as others prosper and we are hit by trial after trial. In this world, you will have trouble, says your saviour. You will face trials of many kinds, says his brother. How will you respond? We'll hear the call of James in uh, verse 2 of our passage. Now take these words in, they are remarkable. Consider it pure joy, my brothers, when you face trials of many kinds. What? I mean, it makes no sense. And yet James will say that how you respond to trial depends completely on what you know. And if all we know is the logic, uh, the wisdom of this world, then, then James' appeal here in verse 2 is insane, insane. Completely irrational, isn't it? That's not how this world works. Uh, the world has a much simpler equation than this. Uh, more trials equals less joy. That's the equation. There's two quotients. If I can get the trial quotient down, the joy bit goes up and vice versa. And so we think to ourselves, if I can control that equation, if I can sort of manoeuvre my life so do I avoid as many trials as possible, joy will start to increase. And don't tell me that's not how you think. But James will say to us, ah, now that's irrational, insane. As if you're in charge of tomorrow, as if you can control that equation. Now what planet do you live on? Certainly not this one. But we'll respond, hey James, uh, surely it is better than your philosophy. Surely it is better than this sort of head in the sand, uh, glib response, denying, denying reality, advocating sort of joy in trials. What's with that? Nuts. It's the sort of thing that gives Christians a bad name. But no, says James in verses three and four. No, this is completely rational. It is, in fact, he says in verse two, the considered view on the situation. Because of what he says that we, we who are Christians, we who have received Jesus as our Lord, because of what we know. For when you come to know the truth of the gospel, you know the truth about this world. That as we face trials, God is not absent, he's not dormant, he's not out, or out of control. You know that here in the fray, your God is at work. Now here's how our Christian thinker David Pallinson describes what we know because of the gospel. We know that in the midst of all of this, all of life, the good, the bad and the ugly, we know that God is in it and he is up to good. He is the person on the scene. He is at work. He is mediating now, carrying us, protecting us, invading this life, transforming this scene. God is at work and he is up to good. You see, the gospel lets us know a much deeper and better story than worldly wisdom can tell. It is the story of a God who in this world is making all things new. Now have a look at the, uh, the last verse of our passage, verse 18, and you'll see it there. He is doing it through his word of truth. The word of Jesus Christ is bringing about new birth, new life, fruit in this world. Now that's who you are tonight. You are like the first fruits of a world that has just begun. 
And so having humbly accepted the word of truth, you were saved, born again. But what James will say to us in verses 3 and 4 is this, this wonderful testimony. He'll say, when you were saved, when you first received that word, God had only just begun with you. Now that you are his, now that you love him, he has a relentless, wonderful plan for your life. He will work through all things, even the trials, to get you there. And where he is heading in your life is so all-surpassingly good, so good, that it should cause us joy of the purest kind. Now follow with me the logic of these verses 2 to 4. Verse 2, as we've seen, Consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds. And why? Do you see it there in verse 3? Verse 3 gives us really the first part of the answer because, and there it is, you know, you know the testing of your faith develops perseverance. All of this the fray of life, the the trials that come at us. He is shaping us through them, testing us, he says. Not uh, testing in the sense of uh, putting us through the ringer to see whether we really actually have faith. Let's really sort them out. No, testing in the sense of proving, bringing it to fullness, showing its completeness, maturing that faith that came to life in us when we first received the word about his son as the truth. Now what he's looking for there in the fire and the flood of life is this proving. A faith that grows in perseverance. A a faith that learns to stand. A faith that can walk in this world. a, A faith that stands up in the midst of trial. But here's the thing. I reckon if you stop at this point, verse 3, you're still left asking, aren't you? Okay, why does being able to persevere in this world cause me to rejoice? And why does that give me joy? I mean, surely I'm not meant to rejoice in the trial itself. And that's one of the dangers of verse 2. It looks a bit like that, doesn't it? As if James is saying some sort of sadistic philosophy of every time you feel a trial, you should think, yes. No, the Bible never says that. Uh, Hebrews 12 that we looked at uh, just a few months ago says none of that is good at the time, but painful. God knows that. No, it's where it's heading that causes us joy. Is it perseverance that causes us joy then? No, again. It's not perseverance for its own sake that uh, gives us this joy, as if the gospel is a sort of a gospel of stoicism. Rejoice because this world is making you hard. Rejoice because you'll get to the point that you'll be sort of like a, a robot. Nothing will hit you. It's sort of a Nietzsche philosophy. Well, what doesn't kill me, kill me makes me stronger. Is that what James is saying here? You'll become so hard, so impenetrable that nothing will get you. No, the picture the Bible gives us of the Christian life is more like a battered pot. No, James' explanation doesn't end at verse 3, does it? Have a look at verse 4. We're only at the halfway point. Endurance is not the end God is plotting towards. Stoicism is not the end. No, he has a much greater prize. This perseverance produced by testing has a purpose. Verse 4. And here, as I promised at the start, here you see God's heart's desire for you. In a world like this, our God is working through all things, even our many trials, to bring about this desire. Verse 4, perseverance must finish its work so that you may be mature and complete and not lacking anything. In this world, your God is plotting a course to get you to the place where you lack for nothing. 
God is plotting towards our maturity, our wholeness, our fullness. He wants us to be humans fully alive. That's his agenda. He's not necessarily plotting towards our popularity, our financial success. He's not plotting towards our family's health. He's not even after that hope-for relationship. He's not after our comfort, our material satisfaction. None of those things are his goal. His agenda is simple, wonderful and relentless, that in this world you might be mature and complete and lack nothing. It's an agenda that the Bible echoes again and again wonderfully in in Romans 8. If you have a look at it, it's page 1135. Now Romans 8 verse 28 captures it for us brilliantly. We know that in all things God works for the good of those that love him, who have been called according to his purpose. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his son. You see what God is doing? In all things, even the trials, he is working through it all to make you like Jesus. And do you know how good his desire for you is? His planned future that he is working towards and he will finish? Well, it's as good as Jesus is. That's how good it is. He who is true, noble, right, pure, lovely, admirable, excellent, praiseworthy, he who does everything well, you will be like him. Can you imagine it? Now this is how I heard our future described recently. Consider what God is plotting towards. Someday you, my friend, will be strong and healthy forever. There will be no decay, no decline, no damage, no diminishing of who you are. You will be alive forever. Someday you will be fearless. I think of the fears that rattle about in your heart. Uh, fears that uh, trap us, fears of perhaps performance, whether you're a student or in the workplace or whatever it might be, uh, financial fears, fears that things in life might fall apart, relationship fears, fears that your marriage might fall apart. You will not have a whiff of fear in your soul. Staggering to think of, isn't it? A life without fear. No more wondering about anyone's opinion of you, no more fearful comparisons, all gone. And no more sorrow, no more grief or tears or the experience of loss that so shapes this world, no more disappointment. How about this? You will be forever truly and deeply happy and not a shadow of regret, no shame, no envy, no bitterness. Your heart will be glad, completely glad in him, blessed because you'll be like him. Uh, you will be beautiful, through and through beautiful. Consider that. And so will the person next to you. Have a look at them right now. Have a look at them. They will be beautiful. Staggering thought. (laughs) And then this final one. You will be a truly good person, as Jesus is good. No stain inside us of greed or depravity or self-absorption or jealousy or betrayal or duplicity. No more sin. No more. You will be like him. 
Can you see how the sane, rational, considered response is pure joy when you see what he's working towards? In all things, in all the muck of life, he is causing you to become like his son, mature, complete, lacking for nothing. That is his heart's desire. How good is it that he is in charge and not us? We would not have come up with that. Thank God. And so there it is. Uh, The gospel is indeed the key to understanding life in this broken world. It is because you know this purposeful wisdom, the wisdom of heaven, that you can rejoice tonight and tomorrow, whatever they hold. I reckon we struggle, don't we, to respond like that, if we're honest. I struggle to be informed by what we know of the gospel, even in advance of tomorrow's trials, let alone in the midst of them. And so it's no wonder that uh, James, writing to this battered congregation, says in verse 5, do you see it there? If any of you lacks wisdom, if this is hard, then you should ask God. There's James' instruction. Anyone who lacks wisdom on this, that's me. I bet it's you too. It's no wonder we sung tonight, uh, just before the, uh, the reading, Speak, O Lord, renew our minds. Help us grasp the plans you have for us. Now, we're so forgetful. And we'll see that in a few weeks' time. Here, again and again, God lays before our vision this glorious good that he is working towards. And all the time, our mind is drifting from it to cheaper prizes. And we need to keep having our minds changed by the wisdom of heaven, his word of truth, which is why his word is so central to all we do. Here is the wisdom of heaven. Because he knows the danger for us is that instead of having our minds persuaded by his purposes, we find uh, that as we're buffeted by the winds of life in this world, uh, we grow to doubt that there is any good in all we're facing. Or we presume that surely there is a better good that God should be aiming for than this one. If he really loved me, things would be different. We forget. We forget his gloriously good plan. And so when we face trials, we turn to God for answers, but we ask in doubt, uh, not intellectual doubt, we know he's in control. No, our doubt is a lack of confidence that given my trials, I'm not sure he loves me. I'm not sure he's committed to my good. We seek a different purpose, a better plan for our lives than his plan. And we end up, we're told in verse 8, double-minded, literally double-souled, end up with split loves, a love of God and his purposes for us. But as we forget them and their goodness, that love dwindles and we grow to love the wisdom of the world, a wisdom based on the old lie that Satan has told right from the beginning, God is not committed to your good, not as much as you are. Such wisdom is persuasive. But James will lay before us these two wisdoms that compete for our heart in this world. And we will come to see that they are altogether different. Whereas the wisdom of heaven leads to completeness and life, the wisdom of this world leads to disorder and death. The more we heed it, we're told in verse 6, the more we will be buffeted in this world by the winds. The more unstable, verse 8, our life will grow, for it is founded on a lie with no substance and no future. Now what James will do is show us that this is a choice we make day in, day out in the midst of real life. James will take us into the muck of life and ask right there in that moment, the steps you're taking right now, are they, are they march to the beat of the wisdom of heaven or the wisdom of this world? 
And he will expose just how easily and pervasively we are swayed by Satan's lie. As we come to a close, let me finish by asking you this. How can we be sure that there in the fray of life, that he really is good and that he is committed to my good, that he is powerfully at work to that end? How can we be sure? Well, well, we've seen it tonight. You know because you have heard, and not the deceptive lie of Satan, but the word of truth. You know the gospel of our glorious Lord Jesus Christ. Now, here is what the gospel brings us a confidence in the unchanging goodness of our God. And no, I'm not talking here about some slogan that we need to keep saying, God is good all the time. Yes, all the time. No flight of fancy, no sort of mantra that if we say it enough, we might actually start to believe it. Now, he's left no doubt about this. No guessing. He is utterly committed to your good. He is committed wider and longer and higher and deeper than you can imagine. And you need to look no further than this simple meal that we're about to share. There it is, proof. Now this simple meal symbolising just how far he would go to bring his heart's desire about. He who did not spare his own son but freely gave him up for us all, how will he not also with Christ freely give us all things, all things? His plan for you is to be complete and lack for nothing. Now there is a solid ground of our confidence in our God's purposes. The deep-seated confidence that 1 verse 17 speaks of, that the one enthroned in heaven who showers us with every good gift has showered us with the most remarkable gift, himself. The gift of his son who freely gave himself for us. And now, verse 18, the gift of new life in that son. Life that has just begun, life that is growing to maturity and completeness. And so let us tonight line up our wandering hearts with his heart's desire. Let us prepare to come to this table tonight and freely receive from him again fresh wisdom for tomorrow. There's a wonderful verse that we will read as we go through James that I want you to have as a memory verse in your head as we go through it. And it is these five simple words, but he gives more grace. That's his answer to all we face in this world. He gives more grace. So let us line up tonight to receive his grace afresh because he promises to give generously and without finding fault. And let us feed on him in our hearts by faith. Well, let me pray for us and then we'll sing together as we prepare to come to this table. Well, let's pray. Father of heavenly lights, and giver of every good and perfect gift, we praise you that you have not held anything back from us, no good thing, not even your son, not even him, because your cause in our life is to lack for no good thing. Your plan for us is still to prosper. You've not forgotten us. You are with us in the midst of the trials, faithful forever, perfect in love. You are sovereign. And so we ask tonight, incline our hearts to long for that which your heart is bringing about, for our good and your glory. Amen.